Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm joined by Kevin Levangie to talk about one of the many Canadians who volunteered to fight in the Spanish Civil War. follow us on Twitter, you might have seen our Volunteer of the Week feature. Every week, usually Friday, we choose a volunteer to feature. But these tweets only tell a little bit of these stories, and we wanted to tell you more, especially since one of the major questions that comes up in research and learning and discussions about Canadian participation in the Spanish Civil War is why. Why did these people choose to travel across the ocean, breaking Canadian laws, walking across mountains, to fight in a purportedly civil war of a country they didn't even belong to? And I think in past episodes, we've started to answer that question by drawing parallels between what was happening in Canada and what was happening in Spain, and the kinds of fear, excitement, and passion people had for fighting fascism, protecting democracy, and working towards a better and more equal world. But it's hard to answer this question because every person's experience and motivation was so different. So Kevin suggested that we spend a little bit of time focusing on certain volunteers, digging into who they were, how they got to Spain, and what brought them there. And for this week's episode, Kevin chose the volunteer Tomo Chachich. And I'm really glad he did, because Tomo had a pretty exciting life. He survived so much. He survived wars, poverty, incarceration in many different forms, in many different places. He survived illnesses. He survived deportation and forced migration. And he never accepted the conditions that were imposed on him. No matter where he was, he agitated for a better life and a better world for himself and those around him. So today we're going to talk about Tomo Chechik. We wanted this to be a mini episode. It did not turn into a mini episode. There was just too much to say about this amazing man and his incredible life. So let's get started. On August 11th, 1931, seven Canadian communist leaders and a man named Tomo Chechik were detained. They would collectively come to be known as the Kingstonate. Prime Minister R.B. Bennett had been elected a little over a year previously with a promise to be tough on dissidents in Canada, particularly communists, and this action certainly fit the bill. Chechich has been the subject of a fairly surprising amount of scholarly attention for a fairly minor Canadian communist figure. This is in large part because the circumstances of his arrest and deportation were pretty dubious and centered around his foreignness and the discourses that positioned communism as a foreign ideology to Canada. Chachich was a union organizer with a reputation as a strong and passionate orator. He worked as a newspaper editor and publisher. And his prison record from his time in the Kingston Penitentiary described him as short and thin, standing less than 5 foot 5 and weighing 145 pounds. He had blue eyes, a dimple on his chin, a broken pinky finger on his left hand, and a tattoo of a nude woman on his right forearm. Apparently, his prison file also said that he was single, an orphan, and a member of the Church of England. The first two things are certainly false, and the third one seems rather unlikely, given that he was from Croatia. 
He was born in 1896 in Yugoslavia and emigrated to North America in 1913 in search of work and quite likely was also trying to avoid the draft. In the U.S., he joined the Industrial Workers of the World, a syndicalist organization and the foremost radical organization of the early 20th century in the U.S. He then joined the Socialist Party and later the Communist Party. In 1920, he traveled to Moscow and received further exposure to communist thought and organization and brought his experience to Yugoslavia to work as an organizer. The Communist Party was outlawed in Yugoslavia and he was arrested at least twice before the need to provide for his very young child meant that he felt the need to return to North America. At this point, he was forbidden entry to the U.S. because of new legislation that gave preferential treatment to immigrants from certain countries. And at this point, he moved to Canada, specifically Calgary. Yay, so, Calgary! <laughs> I very rarely hear there's about uh, communists in Calgary. This is exciting. I know, yeah. The, we get a mention of, of Calgary. I think uh, later on we get a mention of, of uh, St. John and of Halifax. Ooh. So we can, we can celebrate that too. <laughs> um, so it's at this point too that he became active in, in what I guess is variously called like the, the Yugoslav community or like Sometimes people talk about it in terms of the specific national or ethnic groups that compose it, but I usually stick with, with the Yugoslav kind of designation here. And at this point, he was organizing in the Mine Workers Union and had started to work to organize uh, the newspaper called uh, Borba, which was kind of modeled after this, this paper from Chicago, which was specifically for like Yugoslavian emigres to kind of keep in touch with like radical politics in their country. I'd be so interested to know like how many specifically ethnic leftist newspapers and magazines were operating at this time. Definitely. So many. Yeah. I don't think that's data that's achievable. No, I don't I don't like especially because so many of them would have been like broadsheets basically, right? Like really Yeah. And news effectively newsletters run by two or three people. When I was trying to describe exactly what Chechit's role was with this newspaper, I like, had to settle on kind of publisher because it sounded like everything from the reporting to the editing to like the printing was done by two or three people, which yeah makes makes perfect sense. The other thing that I really wanted to find out was what language most of these, the, especially like if you if you had a Yugoslav paper, what language would you publish it in, right? Because there were a few different options. I don't know whether you would you would go with with English or one of the particular like national languages or what the what the option was so that would be interesting to look into too yeah so this this paper kind of like plays a pretty big role throughout his life even after he's he leaves Canada and, and never to return he's still writing for this paper or other Yugoslav papers in in the country so that's pretty cool he also worked really closely with Ido Yordas like one of the more prominent Croatian Canadian communists who went on to fight in Spain, and we talked about that a little bit later. It's also at this point that Chacic became active with the Workers' Unity League, so this is around uh, 1930, 1931, uh, and the Workers' Unity League uh, was the Canadian organization intended to build um, red or revolutionary unions in Canada, so it was closely allied with the, the Communist Party. Like kind and, of different front organizations that were kind of communist at heart, but presenting... I mean, arguably, like, different organizations that were all arms of the Communist Party, but not mm-hmm. named the Communist Party. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's so many different... I find it hard to nail down exactly how to describe the relationship between the between like the, what people call the front organizations and the party, just because 
the way that you portray them so often comes back to how you see the work of the Communist Party in this period. Yeah. Like, and there's so much, I'll call it propaganda, I guess, that, that really wants to talk about, you know, the, the Soviet octopus with like yeah. its arms, you know, <laughs> wrapping around the world. And oh, they're controlling the unions in your neighborhood, too. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, there was there was, you know, some pretty strict party discipline that, that would have reached into these organizations, too. But but there were, you know, ideological reasons, practical reasons for that, too. So. Yeah, and they were all, these organizations might have also been a place for, like, small-C communists or people who didn't identify with the Communist Party to be involved. Like Right, exactly, yeah. Fell- well, and the other thing is that so much of this, of the, like, discussion around, particularly, like, the Progressive Arts Club and those other, like, arts organizations, you know, it makes it seem as if people were being tricked into joining, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't think it was, you know, unclear to most members exactly where the allegiances lay with these orcs. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Surprise. Yeah, so the, You're a communist yeah. now. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think people would have let you know. I feel like the Mounties, you know, skulking <laughs> around the back of your, of your meetings would have made it clear. But yeah, so this so there's a, the Workers Unity League is, is a really pretty fascinating um, organization. If you if anyone listening really wants to to look into that a little bit, particularly if you have any kind of interest in like maritime labor history, I would look into J. B. McLaughlin, who is a Cape Breton uh, miner and organizer and, and communist, and he was really crucial to the organization of the Workers' Unity League until he had a big falling out with the, the Communist Party over, actually over the kind of turn to like popular front anti-fascism. So it gets really, gets really complicated there um, at a certain point, but worth looking into if you want to understand, I guess, the, the transition from both like the, the third period it's called, which like really emphasized organizing red unions to like the popular front anti-fascist stuff. That, that change alienated a lot of people, but also brought in a lot of people. So it's kind of a, it's a really interesting period. And yeah, it was, it was in this role as a member of the Workers' Unity League that uh, Chachich kind of came to have his most prominent role within the Communist Party and its affiliated organizations. He was uh, elected uh, representative of the British Columbia section of the Lumber and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union and had to go to the convention in Ottawa. So that's that's interesting because this this union plays a pretty big role in terms of, or plays a pretty big role in the lives of a lot of the volunteers who went to Spain, and it's also interesting because this is a kind of moment of of serious tension for his relationship with the party because he's only given I guess ten dollars to make the trip from Vancouver to Ottawa. Um, oh my God. And he he talks to Tom Ewan or Tom McEwen, who I think was the secretary of the the Workers' Unity League at this point, and who would also spend a couple of years in prison with Chachich in, in just a few months from this this point. And, and yeah. Ewan tries to get him some more money to make this trip, but for some, I don't know, the wires get crossed. He never gets any money, so he ends up riding the rods. This becomes like a, a pretty big source of tension, I guess, just because they, they say, like, oh, okay, party officials get to sit in an actual carriage <laughs> on their travels, and we, and we end up riding the rods. Um, I think that's probably overstating the, the comfort in which, you know, <laughs> yeah. Tommy Ewan traveled. I don't think there was a lot of money in this. Uh, yeah, and it sounds a lot like the, the rhetoric of like, oh, the union boss is making so much cash. But anyway, so regardless, uh, Chachich, I think, felt a little put out by this. And people make a lot of that going forward. But he remained a member of the, of the party and the movement for the rest of his life. So he couldn't have been too too upset about it, I guess. 
So this, this was obviously not like an insignificant position representing a, a pretty big and important union in BC and going to Ottawa. Uh, but it doesn't explain why he was arrested along with the secretary of the Communist Party of Canada, the secretary of the Workers' Unity League, the editor of the worker newspaper, and two or three other like really prominent communists, uh, or I guess four other prominent communists. So it's, his arrest is strange enough that... Uh, uh, Molinero, I believe his name is, was a historian who wrote a, a paper about uh, Chatchich just a couple of years ago. Um, he refers to this entire affair as the prosecution of the CPC leadership and Chatchich. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> like these two yeah. distinct... Like the big communist leaders and this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, so this, we were laughing about this a little bit before we started recording, but it seems like the reason for Chatchich's uh, arrest was that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the, the Workers' Unity League office in Toronto at the time of the RCMP raid. The, the Mounties actually said they had no information collected on him before his arrest. They had, like, never heard of him. So Chachich later says that if his roommate, who was also, I think, active in the Workers' Unity League, had remembered to mail some German-language communist literature to the workers of Kitchener, he wouldn't have had to go to the office in the first place and then wouldn't have been arrested and deported. Freaking roommates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really puts really puts your roommates in, in perspective. <laughs> Leave some dishes in the sink, get you deported to, to Yugoslavia. We're uh, laughing, but this isn't really funny. Like, that's really no, I mean, tragic, but it just plays out in an entertaining way. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, it went, it went better for Judge than you would have thought, right? Because uh, there, he was, rightfully so, he was very worried about being deported to, you know, Yugoslavia, which mm-hmm. was a fairly right-wing like dictatorship at that point. So yeah, he gets, he gets arrested and he runs afoul of both section 98 of the criminal code of Canada, which was implemented to kind of crush like radical organizations following the, uh, the Winnipeg general strike. The, so this is, this is interesting. And, and I, I don't think we're going to go into too many details here just because it, it gets a little convoluted, but the Molinero piece about Chachich really does a, a good job in, in looking at how at trial, they, the, the government linked Chechit's like foreignness to the the foreignness of, of communism as as an ideology to Canada and saw him saw this as kind of like treasonous conduct being a member of the of the Communist Party being um, you know linked to to this this you know terrifying non non British very specifically not just yeah. non Canadian but non British ideology. Yeah, that's so really the, interesting yeah, that's because really... if you're thinking about Tim Buck and Tom Ewan as like the other prominent figures who were arrested, like uh, the Canadian government was so invested in a xenophobic portrayal of communism that you and and Buck wouldn't have fit into. So like clutching right. onto this person who is has a foreign sounding name. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. No. Exactly. And and they and they were both from the UK, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. and so yeah. so many of the, I mean, uh, like McLaughlin and Cape Breton, who I was talking about, like he was from. He was Scottish, like, like the leadership of, of the party. And, and I think I, maybe not a majority of the membership, but I think a majority of the membership were, you know, quote, foreign born, whether they yeah. were from, you know, the UK or Eastern Europe, but only the Eastern yeah. Europeans were conceived of as, as really foreign. Right? Yeah, especially if you think about British and Canadian ties at that point, like Britain, it was not considered a foreign place to be born. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that's that's really interesting that that Chechich gets branded as the the foreign radical yeah. uh, all throughout this process, and that explains how he gets deported after this. 
So he was, he was sentenced to only two years in prison compared to the five for everybody else, which I think the judge kind of acknowledged that he really had no business being swept up in this, but they weren't going to let him go at this point. And also, there's some interesting discussion about how the, the CPC leadership didn't like make it super clear that Chachich wasn't a member of the leadership because he had been he'd been like specifically given the task of of radicalizing or or attempting to I guess bring in like they use the term like Slavic peoples into the the Canadian Communist Party and he had been he was being going to Northern Ontario I think to work in like lumber camps to try to you know increase the membership in the Communist Party um, so he was carrying like, a couple of cards that were signed by. Ewan and Buck at the time of his arrest, which I think didn't help his case. I don't know whether that would have counted it as kind of hanging him out to dry if they'd been saying, no, he's not one of us, or if that would have actually helped his case in terms of not seeing him get sentenced to a jail term. But I'm sure they, they had some like, strategic reasons for doing what they were doing at that point. The defense was pretty well coordinated across across the, the different uh, defendants, Yeah, and that's something that uh, Andrea talked about, was like the emphasis in the early 1930s that communist organizations had to put on like defense and rather than on offense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, for sure. Which Section 98 really pushed them to do because so much of what they were doing was illegal. No, just what I guess the last kind of thing I'll say about that here is that you know, this, this treason, the argument that this was treason, the argument that this was a, specifically, I think they needed to prove that the party was, was advocating for a violent overthrow of the government, which they had a really hard time doing. They had to like trot out uh, like Lenin pamphlets and be like, you know, by association, like we're, yeah. <laughs> like even if the pamphlet itself doesn't specifically say like, take up arms, we're going to just link this to 1917 in Russia and show that like, this is how it as a result, these guys are, are planning violent revolution. Which, I mean, you know, it wasn't like they were adverse to violent revolution, but they weren't specifically uh, <laughs> They weren't really at, at that, that point that yet. <laughs> no, ever. no, they were too busy trying to not go to jail. I yeah. Think really, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, so he gets, he gets sentenced to two years in prison, and he was, by, by all accounts, a difficult prisoner, which is really my favorite thread throughout all of the Chechich kind of narrative is when he had gone from Moscow back to Yugoslavia in like the early 1920s, mm -hmm. he got arrested a couple of times and was, you know, constantly stirring up the, <laughs> the prisons where he was. And then when he gets, he gets arrested again and thrown in, I think, the Kingston Pen for, for a period, all eight of the, the communists kind of who got arrested get thrown into basement cells in what they called segregated confinement at this really awful prison in Kingston. It wasn't, I don't think it was the pen. I think it was another one. And they, they kept them like in the basement at this old prison right next to the, to a, the, the river, I guess, or the lake or whatever body of water. The time for his uh, deportation grew nearer. I guess the, the Canadian left outside of the prison uh, wrote letters and petitioned for uh, clemency. They were really obviously concerned about his deportation to the kingdom of Yugoslavia because you know, sending a known communist to like a noted anti-communist country was not likely to increase his life expectancy. Um, and we, we talked about that, I think, in a couple other places, about the deportation mostly following, or not so much deportation as the, the returning of like, foreign-born Canadian volunteers after the war yeah, to their countries of origin, so yeah, Germany so like in Yeah, so repatriation but. to countries that they have already fled. Right, exactly, exactly. So this this was is obviously similar a few years earlier. So yeah, this is this is where it's worth considering. I guess we were talking about the, the parallels between 
this particular moment in history and like current immigration law. So at the time, uh, I can't actually speak to how closely this relates to the current immigration law, but, but at the time, the government had a pretty alarming amount of leeway to remove any immigrant they saw as undesirable, uh, which included, of course, communists, but also uh, mentally ill people, anyone receiving unemployment relief, and anyone branded immoral, which is a pretty broad category. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, I know, and I know today that I'm not entirely sure how that works in terms of deportation of, of people already in Canada, but I know that like the way that the immigration system works, it definitely, you know, intentionally uh, and very explicitly discriminates against anyone who might be seen as a, a burden on the healthcare system. So people yeah. with disabilities are, are yeah, so required like, to... Yeah, uh, so like people who were injured as like temporary foreign workers injured working here, but now are seen as a burden and right. wouldn't be accepted. And also people who have committed criminal offenses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people who committed criminal offenses, I think, is is who most people conceive of when they think of someone being deported. Right? You you picture this is this is the the image of you know the the quote bad immigrant getting deported, yeah. and uh, and obviously that that needs to be troubled in the first place. But then you throw in all these other people who are being deported for effectively being a financial burden on yeah. on the state and on yeah. the society. That's kind of horrifying yeah. and uh, yeah. something that we don't necessarily talk about as continuing to to happen today. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about this a little bit before we started uh, recording, the the distinction between kind of a like a criminal proceedings and a, an administrative affair, I guess in these in these contexts is really important because if you can if it's an administrative decision to deport someone, you can you know file uh, a lawsuit to kind of block your own deportation if you have access to you know legal help. But most of the people at this point uh, in, in in time, you know. Um, Chachich certainly, you know, would have had help through the the party to kind of fight his deportation, but not didn't have any money himself to hire a lawyer or fight this deportation. Yeah. And there was never, you know, a hearing or anything to decide whether or not this was a, a legitimate deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you couldn't contest it until after it happened, and that's, uh, you know, significant at this particular moment too. Yeah. So the example I that made me think of was Abdul Abdi, who was brought here as a child and then was taken into child welfare. So he was a ward of the state, but the state did not apply for citizenship on his behalf and now are deporting him because he does not have citizenship. So like the idea that like the state failed to file those papers and as a child, he was not capable of filing those papers, but now they're deporting him because those papers were never filed, which is just definitely like, oh, this is an administrative problem that we are focusing on instead of the rights of this person. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I mentioned too, in the, in the U S like at the Mexico border right now, the idea that there's some, some kind of fight going on, I think within the Republican party, but whether or not they should hire 5,000 new judges to speed through deportations at the border so that they can, they can have these hearings faster and get people yeah. like, returned to their country of origin meanwhile like trump says he doesn't see the need for the hearings at all yeah so there's you know in, the, in that case you're getting your your criminal proceeding but it's not not exactly in to your benefit yeah. i guess it's anyway so basically the the immigration system even when it has the veneer of legality is still a, a fairly mm-hmm. horrifying way of forcing people into like dangerous situations, you know, whether it be to return somewhere where there's 
you know, a, a lot of uh, domestic violence. If you're fleeing domestic violence, you're being returned to, to uh, yeah. an unsafe situation. Or if you're being returned to a country where you are, you know, wanted for political activities or something like that. Yeah, or returned to a country where you have never lived. <laughs> like, right, right, as yeah. a, like, where you left when you were two or something and you don't have family yeah. and you don't have the yeah. language. Like, yeah. Right. Um, and that's a pretty common occurrence. Yeah, so he was, this This gets really interesting because he, the the sort of Keystone Cops element of, of some of this kind of deportation saga are, are the only sort of funny part of it. Chechich is released in December 1933 on Boxing Day, so nice, you know, spend Christmas in prison, one, <laughs> one last Christmas in prison, and he's deported to the UK via Halifax. So in Glasgow, he's allowed to write to his comrades in Canada for the first time, and he shares information about the prison conditions. He hadn't been in contact with anybody, it sounds like, for the duration of his, of his time in prison. And then it gets really complicated about exactly where he was and what was happening, but it sounds like he was kind of shuffled back and forth between the Netherlands and Belgium. So at some point, he was routed through the Netherlands to France to Belgium to Switzerland and then oh, Austria. Wow. And then at some point in this this trip, he was slipped a Soviet passport by <laughs> by what the uh, by what one article calls uh, some international comrades. <laughs> that, to me, that sounds like uh, some Soviet agents slipped him a Soviet wow. passport. And then at that point, he slipped out of custody. And <laughs> Lots took, of slipping, I, and not, very slippery yeah, situation. Very slippery, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, and this is I'm also really not sure who like was he being escorted by you know, British agents, what was going yeah. on here? Anyway, he, he gets out of, out of their custody, takes a train from Hungary to Moscow, and stays in Moscow for three okay. years. And he, he works uh, building the Moscow subway in, like, these really kind of shocking, shocking hours. He works 16 hours a day for six days, and then you get six days off. Okay. Um, That's so, so, like, Fort McMurray. <laughs> yeah yeah except except according to according to him he was actually like not even just according to him i guess like kind of patently this was somewhat better than the conditions that he was working in in canada because yeah so he and he gets he goes to the opera he goes to all kinds of cultural events <laughs> like he gets to do all these things that he would never would have been able to do yeah in, in a country that uh that wasn't the ussr so he he really enjoys his time there i guess uh at least at least for the first while um and he writes at this point. He's still writing back to Canada for for the like worker newspapers, talking about specifically like the material advances of the USSR, like in the in the nineteen thirties, like since he last visited. I, I guess he was also there during the Russian Civil War. So, so the the progress from like nineteen twenty two to what is this nineteen thirty three would have been pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so he gets one one article says he gets a little bored. I guess at this point or you know, restless anyway, is maybe the right, the right term. So he, from here, he joins the international brigades, making him one of a few kind of like, again, using the term Canadians here doesn't seem quite accurate, but one of the few kind of, you know, Canadian adjacent people to join from, from the USSR. So he leaves for Spain in March, 1937 and becomes the captain of a company that, from Moscow, yeah. And he operates behind enemy lines around Cordoba. So he's kind of, I think, kind of doing partisan stuff. When he finished with that assignment, he met up with some of the Canadians uh, at the International Brigade's headquarters and sees, yeah, so sees some people who he knew from BC in particular and a few from Ontario. Um, Ivan Stimak, I believe his name was, uh, who was a political commissar with, with the Dimitrovs, but was from 
had lived in Vancouver for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they talked, I guess, for you know several days, like caught up and you know, kind of compared notes about you know both the international class struggle that they're participating in at that point and about how things were in Canada and, and you know what what the USSR was like. So that that must have been kind of some interesting conversations. Unlike the other Canadians who he had just you know spent time with. When it was time to leave Spain, he couldn't return to Canada, mm-hmm. and he also couldn't return to the U.S. because of the like the immigration policies that were you know discriminating against people from the Balkans or mm-hmm. anywhere else. As a result, he had to stay to the very end of the war, which you know we don't cover too much in in our work because most of the Canadians and most of the international brigades had been pulled out by that point. Yeah, they were but pulled out around like fall of 1938. Yeah, and exactly. A- and at that point, things had really started to fall apart already. And then, yeah, by ni- 1939, it was basically just a series of retreats and everyone trying to get out of Spain if they could. So he's in Catalonia being pushed towards the French border. And with, you know, 500,000 other people, he crosses crosses the border and they get imprisoned in the French refugee camps or concentration camps, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them, in the south. And once again, he starts immediately agitating for better <laughs> conditions. They said something like they, they had to share a loaf of bread between 25 people. That was their daily... Oh my God. The daily rations. Um, and of course, like dysentery and every other yeah. nasty disease you could possibly imagine was pretty rampant. And a lot of these, if I remember correctly, a lot of these camps were on beaches and like provided very little shelter and warmth. Oof. Yeah. Just brutal. Yeah. yeah. And he was, so he was there for two years. Wow. And I'd, I'd be interested to see a little, look into this a little more because, you know, it would have been bad enough to be in these camps under the Popular Front government in yeah. France. But then like the Vichy government. Oh, wow. Comes yeah. to power, right? Yeah. So it's ni- 1941 is when he escapes the camps. So he would have lived under, like, if not openly fascist, like fascist adjacent rule. And I don't know what sort of conditions that the communists in these camps would have been subjected to. But I can't imagine. Yeah, so yeah, so he and some of some of his comrades uh, escaped the camp. And then he works as a miner in northern France for a while. He then, this part was almost unbelievable. He escapes... And goes to Berlin. Okay. And he, so he's, yeah, he's working. Like mid-World War II. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's 1941. Like, the, they've just invaded the Soviet Union. Like, the Nazis have just wow. invaded the Soviet Union. And what does he do? But he moves to Berlin and works in construction. And he's, he's just, like, being ravaged by tuberculosis at this point. Like, it's, oh. like, it's in his bones. It's in his spine. And of course, he can't go to the hospital because he's worried yeah. what this, like, the scrutiny will do if he yeah. spends any time. He's in Berlin. There's not really too many details about this that I could find. But he stays there until 1942, where he uses a forged passport to enter Nazi-occupied Yugoslavia. Okay. And he joins the partisans in 1943, despite being just so sick. Can you tell so me who the partisans are? So, so yeah, the partisans in, in Yugoslavia were... From my understanding, like predominantly a group of, of communists who were like operating behind the Nazi lines and stirring up as much trouble as they possibly could. I think as the war went on, they became increasingly organized along the lines of a more traditional military organization. But for the most part, they were doing kind of guerrilla okay. warfare. And the most famous of the, the Yugoslav Partians was uh, Tito, mm-hmm. who went on to become the, the post-war leader of, of like communist or socialist Yugoslavia, depending on how you want to categorize it that's an interesting period in history that gets very complicated so we'll (laughs) slide past that one a little bit but uh, so he he's fighting with with these partisans uh, obviously putting some of his experience in Spain to work yeah and he fights and is wounded 
again, no details on that, but he doesn't really receive any like serious medical treatment until 1944, uh, when he's checked into an Italian military hospital where one leg gets amputated and he nearly loses the other leg, but he refuses to have it amputated despite it being tubercular. So yeah, he's, he's in, he's in an Italian, Italian military hospital at this point. Oh my God. So in the war ends, he returns to Yugoslavia and this, this is really, I find this such an interesting moment, especially for the, a lot of the, the Canadians who had kind of Yugoslavian roots would return, like return to Yugoslavia after World War II and return to like a socialist state. Like they had, which they had fought for. A lot of them had been in the partisans. Yeah. So, he, so he returns to a country where they're, they're building, building socialism. Wow. And I like, can't, can't imagine like how you would feel about that after... <laughs> being deported from, you yeah. know, Hopeful, God knows how many countries. Hopeful, like, yeah. I think I think tired. for the first time in... <laughs> certainly tired. He was certainly tired. He, and he, got, he went to work developing mining policy as he recovered from his illness. And then he, he got sicker and had to retire in 1948. But he got a full, full pension and he moved to kind of a, a rural area from uh, Zagreb and seemed to, like, live out the rest of his life organizing peasant and workers' councils, and writing occasionally for Yugoslav-Canadian uh, newspapers. <laughs> and he wrote, he would regularly write almost like memoirs, or, and I think like certain updates on how things were going in Yugoslavia. Oh, wow. and, he, and he wrote them until the 1960s. And he died in 1969 at the age of uh, 75 in the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Wow. Yeah. That is a life. Yeah, he, I, you know... Cinematic is maybe overused, but at this particular, like you could really do quite the uh, quite the narrative of of his life. I don't know how delicately they would handle his final years in Yugoslavia, but and it also says a lot about borders. <laughs> um, it does, and like the forced mobility of certain people at in certain periods, or certain people in all periods that he was forced to travel around so much. I mean, he obviously has ties to Canada, right? Served yeah. in Canadian prison, organized in Canada, wrote yeah. in Canada and to Canada. Yeah. And yet like he's hasn't even made it into our database yet because he doesn't right. count or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. wild. And the so that's a lot of the scholarship about his life has focused on well by, by a lot. I mean all of the scholarship about his life has focused on that. There's been a, a few articles. Um the two that I drew from the most in in this kind of uh short summary is uh Rebel Without a Country by Anthony Rasporich, mm-hmm. which is from nineteen seventy eight. And then A Species of Treason, mm-hmm. Deportation and Nation Building in the case of Tomo Kachich, nineteen thirty one to nineteen thirty four by Dennis G. Molinaro. And the, the Molinaro piece really hammers home the point about his kind of international identity, I would say, yeah. and really like, f- focuses in on, on that as, as the kind of most interesting aspect of, of this whole story. Mm-hmm. I find it, a lot of the, a lot of the, the writing about, about you know, these volunteers and just communists in Canada generally is, is so hyper-focused on this, this what, what is a kind of a perceived tension between the, the situation in a, in a national context in, in one hand, but then also this kind of international scope of, of their activism and of their kind of like identity. Yeah. And what I, I find it funny because everyone really wants to focus on, on how, you know, how complicated this is and how, yeah. you know, there's this bifurcated identity. But 
at a certain point, like the word internationalism itself sums up the nature of this relationship, which yeah. is like, it's not saying we're erasing national difference. What it's saying is we're working together across national, ethnic, you know, political designations to, to kind of have a shared political project. Like to me, it yeah. seems a little more simple than... Yeah, so the title of the second article you were talking about, Deportation and Nation Building, it makes me yeah. think about how deportation and restrictions on immigration are such a nation building project, right? Yeah. To say that like For certain sure. groups are undesirable and certain groups are. Mm -hmm. And like Tim Buck, because he's British born, is more desirable than Tomo Chachik, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so kind of like nation building versus world building. And that these people yeah. were working... Many of these volunteers were very much in a world-building state of mind. Yeah. And that does come to odds with nation-building, or sometimes mm -hmm. they can work together. <laughs> but, right. yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. Well, and the something that's really closely related to this, too, uh, in the news yesterday, I guess, was that the, um, the Supreme Court of the U.S. Like, handed down the decision that the what people are calling like the Muslim ban, you know, preventing... Uh, people from coming to the U.S. from certain, like, Muslim-majority countries. Um, one of the precedents that they cited in their case was, I believe it's the the denial of a visa to uh, Ernst Mandel, who was a, a communist from Belgium, I believe. Okay. And he wanted to come to the U.S. to, to do some sort of speaking tour, and he was denied entry in the in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and then this was used as as basically proof that you could deny people like entry to the US today. <laughs> like that's not a little on the nose. Yeah. Uh, in terms of its relation to what we're talking about. I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, um yeah, and I just like I wanna emphasize like that notion that um immigration policy is nation building because I see a lot of yeah. rhetoric right now like this isn't our country or our country's better than this. And it's like, no, they're deliberately trying to build a new country or build right. your nation in a very specific direction. Um Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and who's let in and who isn't. And then, but at the same time, the, the discourses that, that are popular, you know, popularly cir circulated about these, these policies uh, rarely have any like coherent relationship to the actual policy is what mm -hmm. I would say. You know what I mean? Like the, everything from the inscription on the Statue of Liberty in the U.S. Uh, to, you know, this Canadian idea of where the, where the mosaic, where the, yeah. you know, in like living in Toronto right now too, that's, that's the stuff that that really like kind of grates on me is yeah. all of these yeah. i guess i would say particularly in in the wake of the of the van attack here yeah earlier in the yeah. year where you know someone who was by all accounts closely linked to you know white supremacist ideology i guess you know in the case of like i would say like militant militant patriarchy at the very least and the yeah. relationship between that and white supremacy is certainly mm -hmm. those links are clear and the response by everyone is to do this general, oh, the, Toronto isn't like this. We're the most multicultural city in the world. We're going yeah. to talk about our strength through diversity without actually dealing with the substantive like, fact that this was an attack that predominantly targeted like women of color or, you know, women who were immigrants. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, that's, that second part just isn't mentioned when, when the response is. Anyway, so that, that kind of stuff makes me absolutely, drives me up the wall, I would yeah. say. Yeah, and this is the time of year for the love is love messages on everything. Right. That right. Uh, kind of say, like, we accept queerness without actually naming queerness at all. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, right, I just right, want right. to see a t-shirt that says, like, lust is lust and have people right. actually have to, like, <laughs> corporations actually have to grapple with, like, 
what it means to live in a world where queer lust is okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry, that's a little digression. Yeah. Um, no, but I, what we're saying, I guess, is just that there's this erasure of like the actual nature of immigration policy and the actual nature yeah. of of homophobia or mm-hmm. you know patriarchy or whatever else uh, by capitalism. these sort of blank capitalism. Yeah, exactly. By these blanket statements about who we are and who we aren't and. Do you have anything else to say, more to say about Tajik? I think that's that's about it. Yeah, an interesting character. Yeah. And I'm glad I got a chance to, to look into him a little bit more. Today's episode was written by Kevin Levangi and produced by Karina Mickelson. It was brought to you by Canada in the Spanish Civil War and supported by SHRC, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our theme song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pizzoa from the Free Music Archive. You can find out more about our project at SpanishCivilWar.ca, and you can find our show notes, including all the articles and sources we referenced in today's episode, at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. You can get in touch with us via our website, via our Twitter, at CanadaSCW, or by email. You can always send me a line at Karina.Mickelson at Dal.ca. That's K-A-A-R-I-N-A dot m-i-k-a-l-s-o-n at dial.ca our next episode is in two weeks and we'll be bringing you another volunteer feature so listen in